Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 2 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 2. Remembering the clear sunlight of those naivetes, though in his blue gloom he had abated no jot of the ambition, Tichin sighed deeply as he came back for a moment to regard his dining-room. Really it was to see how much time he had left in which to think out what to say to Port Scatho. Port Scatho had moved his chair over to beside Sylvia and, almost touching her, was leaning over and recounting the griefs of his sister who was married to a lunatic. Tichens gave himself again for a moment to the luxury of self-pity. He considered that he was dull-minded, heavy, ruined and so calumniated that at times he believed in his own infamy, for it is impossible to stand up forever against the obloquy of your land and remain unhurt in the mind. If you hunch your shoulders too long against a storm, your shoulders will grow bowed. His mind stopped for a moment, and his eyes gazed dully at Sylvia's letter, which lay open on the tablecloth. His thoughts came together, converging on the loosely written words, for the last nine months a woman. He wondered swiftly what he had already said to Port Scatho, only that he had known of his wife's letter, not when, and that he approved. Well, on principle, he sat up, to think that one could be brought down to thinking so slowly. He ran swiftly over what had happened in the train from Scotland and before. McMaster had turned up one morning beside their breakfast-table in the farmhouse, much agitated, looking altogether too small in a cloth cap and a new grey tweed suit. He had wanted fifty pounds to pay his bill with at some place up the line above... above... Berwick suddenly flashed into Teachin's mind. That was the geographic position. Sylvia was at Bambra on the coast, Junction, Wooler. He himself to the north-west on the moors. McMaster to the northeast of him, just over the border, in some circumspect beauty spot where you did not meet people. Both McMaster and Mrs. Dusherman would know that country and gurgle over its beastly literary associations. The Shearer made a pet Marjorie. Oh, McMaster would no doubt turn an honest penny by writing articles about it, and Mrs. Dusherman would hold his hand. She had become McMaster's mistress, as far as Teachins knew, after a dreadful scene in the rectory, Dusherman having mauled his wife like a savage dog and McMaster in the house. It was natural, a sadic reaction, as it were. But Teachins rather wished they hadn't. Now it appeared they had been spending a week together, or more. Dusherman by that time was in an asylum. From what Teachins had made out, they had got out of bed early one morning to take a boat and see the sunrise on some lake, and had passed an agreeable day together, quoting, Since when we stand side by side, only hands may meet, and other poems of Gabriel Charles Dante Rossetti, no doubt to justify their sin. On coming home, they had run their boat's nose into the tea-table of the Port Scathos, with Mr. Brownlee, the nephew, just getting out of a motor to join them. The Port Scather group was spending the night at the McMaster's Hotel, which backed on to the lake. It was the ordinary damn sort of thing that must happen in these islands that are only a few yards across. 
The McMasters appear to have lost their heads frightfully, although Lady Portscatho had been as motherly as possible to Mrs. Dusherman. So motherly, indeed, that if they had not been unable to observe anything, they might have recognised the Portscathos as backers rather than spies upon themselves. It was, no doubt, however, Brownlee who had upset them. He wasn't very civil to McMaster, whom he knew as a friend of Teachin's. He had dashed up from London in his motor to consult his uncle, who was dashing down from the west of Scotland, about the policy of the bank in that moment of crisis. McMaster, anyhow, did not spend the night in the hotel, but went to Jedborough or Melrose or some such place, turning up again almost before it was light to have a frightful interview about five in the morning with Mrs. Dusherman, who, towards three, had come to a disastrous conclusion as to her condition. They had lost their nerves for the first time in their association, and they had lost them very badly indeed, the things that Mrs. Dusherman said to McMaster seeming almost to have passed belief. Thus, when McMaster turned up at Teachin's breakfast, he was almost out of his mind. He wanted Teachin's to go over in the motor he had brought, pay the bill at the hotel, and travel down to town with Mrs. Dusherman, who was certainly in no condition to travel alone. Teachin's was also to make up the quarrel with Mrs. Dusherman and to lend McMaster fifty pounds in cash, as it was then impossible to change cheques anywhere. Teachins got the money from his old nurse, who, because she distrusted banks, carried great sums in five-pound notes in a pocket under her under-petticoat. McMaster, pocketing the money, had said, "'That makes exactly two thousand guineas that I owe you. I'm making arrangements to repay you next week.' Teachins remembered that he had rather stiffened and had said, "'For God's sake, don't. I beg you not to. Have Dusherman properly put under trustees in lunacy and leave his capital alone.' I really beg you, you don't know what you'll be letting yourselves in for. You don't owe me anything and you can always draw on me. Teachins never knew what Mrs. Dusherman had done about her husband's estate, over which he had at that date had a power of attorney. But he had imagined that from that time on McMaster had felt a certain coldness for himself and that Mrs. Dusherman had hated him. During several years McMaster had been borrowing hundreds at a time from Teachins. The affair with Mrs. Dusherman had cost her lover a good deal. He had week-ended almost continuously in Rye at the expensive hostel. Moreover, the famous Friday parties for geniuses had been going on for several years now, and these had meant new furnishings, bindings, carpets and loans to geniuses, at any rate before McMaster had had the year of the royal bounty. So the sum had grown to two thousand pounds, and now to guineas and from that date the McMasters had not offered any repayment. McMaster had said that he dare not travel with Mrs. Dusherman because all London would be going south by that train. All London had. It pushed in at every conceivable and inconceivable station all down the line. It was the great rout of the 3814. Teachins had got on board at Berwick, where they were adding extra coaches, and by giving a five-pounds note to the guard, who hadn't been able to promise isolation for any distance, had got a locked carriage. It hadn't remained locked for long enough to let Mrs. Dusherman have her cry out, but it had apparently served to make some mischief. The Sandbark party had got on, no doubt, at Wooler, the Port Scatho party somewhere else. Their petrol had run out somewhere, and sales were stopped, even to bankers. McMaster, who after all had travelled by the same train, hidden beneath two blue jackets, had picked up Mrs. Dusherman at King's Cross, and that had seemed the end of it. 
Tietjens, back in his dining room, felt relief and also anger. He said, Portske, though, time's getting short. I'd like to deal with this letter, if you don't mind. Portske, though, came as if up out of a dream. He had found the process of attempting to convert Mrs. Teachens to divorce law reform very pleasant, as he always did. He said, yes, oh, oh yes. Teachens said slowly, if you can listen. McMaster has been married to Mrs. Dusham in exactly nine months. Have you got that? Mrs. Teachens did not know this till this afternoon. The period Mrs. Teachens complained of in her letter is nine months. She did perfectly right to write the letter, as such I approve of it. If she had known that the McMasters were married, she would not have written it. I didn't know she was going to write it. If I had known she was going to write it, I should have requested her not to. If I had requested her not to, she would no doubt not have done so. I did know of the letter at the moment of your coming in. I had heard of it at lunch only ten minutes before. I should, no doubt, have heard of it before, but this is the first time I have lunched at home in four months. I have today had a day's leave as being warned for foreign service. I have been doing duty at Ealing. Today is the first opportunity I have had for serious business conversation with Mrs. Teachens. Have you got all that? Port Scather was running towards Teachens, his hand extended, and over his whole shining personage the air of an enraptured bridegroom. Teachens moved his right hand a little to the right, thus eluding the pink, well-fleshed hand of Port Scather. He went on, frigidly. You had better, in addition, know as follows. The late Mr. Dusherman was a scathological, afterwards a homicidal, lunatic. He had recurrent fits, usually on a Saturday morning. That was because he fasted, not abstained merely, on Fridays. On Fridays he also drank. He had acquired the craving for drink when fasting, from finishing the sacramental wine after communion services. That is a not unknown occurrence. He behaved latterly with great physical violence to Mrs. Dusherman. Mrs. Dusherman, on the other hand, treated him with the utmost consideration and concern. She might have had him certified much earlier, but considering the pain that confinement must cause him during his lucid intervals, she refrained. I have been an eyewitness of the most excruciating heroisms on her part. As for the behaviour of McMaster and Mrs. Dusherman, I am ready to certify, and I believe society accepts, that it has been most oh, circumspect and right. There has been no secret of their attachment to each other. I believe that their determination to behave with decency during their period of waiting has not been questioned. Lord Portscatho said, No, no, never, most, as you say, circumspect, and yes, right. Mrs. Dusherman, Teachens continued, has presided at McMaster's Literary Fridays for a long time, of course since long before they were married, but as you know, McMaster's Fridays have been perfectly open. You might almost call them celebrated. Lord Portscatho said, Yes, yes, indeed, I should be only too glad to have a ticket for Lady Portscatho. She's only got to walk in, Teachin said. I'll warn them. They'll be pleased. If perhaps you would look in tonight, they have a special party. But Mrs. McMaster was always attended by a young lady who saw her off by the last train to Rye. Or I very frequently saw her off myself, McMaster being occupied by the weekly article that he wrote for one of the papers on Friday nights. They were married on the day after Mr. Dusherman's funeral. You can't blame them, Lord Portscatho proclaimed. 
I don't propose to, Teachin said. The really frightful tortures Mrs. Dushiman had suffered justified and indeed necessitated her finding protection and sympathy at the earliest possible moment. They have deferred this announcement of their union partly out of respect for the usual period of mourning, partly because Mrs. Dushiman feels very strongly that, with all the suffering that is now abroad, wedding feasts and signs of rejoicing on the part of non-participants are eminently to be deprecated. Still, the little party of tonight is by way of being an announcement that they are married. He paused to reflect for a moment. I perfectly understand, Lord Portscatho exclaimed. I perfectly approve. Believe me, I and Lady Portscatho will do everything, everything. Most admirable people. Teachins, my dear fellow, your behaviour, most handsome. Teachin said, wait a minute. There was an occasion in August, 14, in a place on the border. I can't remember the name. Lord Portscatho burst out, My dear fellow, I beg you won't. I beseech you not to. Teachens went on. Just before then, Mr. Dushiman had made an attack of an unparalleled violence on his wife. It was that that caused his final incarceration. She was not only temporarily disfigured, but she suffered serious internal injuries and, of course, great mental disturbance. It was absolutely necessary that she should have change of scene, but I think you will bear me out that in that case too their behaviour was, again, circumspect and right. Portscatho said, I know, I know, Lady Portscatho and I agreed, even without knowing what you have just told me, that the poor things almost exaggerated it. He slept, of course, at Jedborough. Teachin said, yes, they almost exaggerated it. I had to be called in to take Mrs. Dushiman home. It caused, apparently, misunderstandings. Portscatho, full of enthusiasm at the thought that at least two unhappy victims of the hateful divorce laws had, with decency and circumspectness, found the haven of their desires, burst out, By God, Teachins, if I ever hear a man say a word against you, your splendid championship of your friend, your unswerving devotion, Teachins said, Wait a minute, Portscatho, will you? He was unbuttoning the flap of his breast pocket. A man who can act so splendidly in one instance, Portscatho said, and you're going to France, if anyone, if anyone dares. At the sight of a vellum-cornered, green-edged book in Teachin's hand, Sylvia suddenly stood up. As Teachin's took from an inner flap a cheque that had lost its freshness, she made three great strides over the carpet to him. Oh, Chrissy, she cried out, he hasn't, that beast hasn't. Teachin's answered, he has. He handed the soiled cheque to the banker. Portscatho looked at it with slow bewilderment. Account overdrawn, he read. Brown is my nephew's handwriting. To the club, it's... You aren't going to take it lying down, Sylvia said. Oh, thank goodness, you aren't going to take it lying down. No, I'm not going to take it lying down, Teachin said. Why should I? A look of hard suspicion came over the banker's face. You appear, he said, to have been overdrawing your account. People should not overdraw their accounts. For what sum are you overdrawn? Teachens handed his passbook to Portscatho. I don't understand on what principle you work, Sylvia said to Teachens. There are things you take lying down, this you don't. Teachens said, it doesn't matter really, except for the child. Sylvia said, I guaranteed an overdraft for you up to a thousand pounds last Thursday. You can't be overdrawn over a thousand pounds. 
I'm not overdrawn at all, Teachin said. I was for about fifteen pounds yesterday. I didn't know it. Portscather was turning over the pages of the passbook, his face completely blank. I simply don't understand, he said. You appear to be in credit. You appear always to have been in credit, except for a small sum now and then, for a day or two. I was overdrawn, Teachin said, for fifteen pounds yesterday. I should say for three or four hours, the course of a post from my army agent to your head office. During those two or three hours, your bank selected two out of six of my cheques to dishonour, both being under two pounds. The other one was sent back to my mess at Ealing, who won't, of course, give it back to me. That also is marked account overdrawn and in the same handwriting. But good God, the banker said, that means you'll ruin. It certainly means my ruin, Teachin said. It was meant to. But, the banker said, a look of relief came into his face, which had begun to assume the aspect of a broken man's. You must have other accounts with the bank, a speculative one perhaps, on which you are heavily down. I don't myself attend to clients' accounts except the very huge ones which affect the bank's policy. You ought to, Teachin said. It's the very little ones you ought to attend to as a gentleman making his fortune out of them. I have no other account with you. I have never speculated in anything in my life. I have lost a great deal in Russian securities, a great deal for me, but so no doubt of you. Then betting, Portscather said. I never put a penny on a horse in my life, Teachin said. I know too much about them. Portscather looked at the faces first of Sylvia, then of Teachin's. Sylvia, at least, was his very old friend. She said, Christopher never bets and never speculates. His personal expenses are smaller than those of any man in town. You could say he has no personal expenses. Again, the swift look of suspicion came into Portscather's open face. Oh, Sylvia said, you couldn't suspect Christopher and me of being in a plot to blackmail you. No, I couldn't suspect that, the banker said, but the other explanation is just as extraordinary, to suspect the bank, the bank. How do you account? He was addressing Teachin's. His round head seemed to become square below. A motion worked on his jaws. I'll tell you simply this, Teachin said. You can then repair the matter as you think fit. Ten days ago I got my marching orders. As soon as I had handed over to the officer who relieved me, I drew cheques for everything I owed, to my military tailor, the mess, for one pound twelve shillings. I had also to buy a compass and a revolver, the Red Cross orderlies having a next mine when I was in hospital. Portscatho said, Good God! Don't you know they are next things? Teachins asked. He went on. The total, in fact, amounted to an overdraft of £15, but I did not think of it as such because my army agents ought to have paid my month's army pay over to you on the 1st. As you perceive, they have only paid it over this morning, the 13th. But as you will see from my passbook, they have always paid about the 13th, not the 1st. Two days ago, I lunched at the club and drew that cheque for £1.14 shillings and sixpence, one ten for personal expenses and the 4 and 6 for lunch. You were, however, actually overdrawn, the banker said sharply. Teachin said, yesterday, for two hours. But then Portscather said, what do you want done? We'll do what we can. Teachin said, I don't know, do what you like. You'd better make what explanation you can to the military authority. 
If they court-martialed me, it would hurt you more than me, I assure you of that. There is an explanation. Putzke, though, began suddenly to tremble. What? What? What explanation? He said. You, damn it, you draw this out. Do you dare to say my bank? He stopped, drew his hand down his face and said, But yes, you're a sensible, sound man. I've heard things against you, but I don't believe them. Your father always spoke very highly of you. I remember he said if you wanted money, you could always draw on him through us for three or four hundred. That's what makes it so incomprehensible. It's, it's, his agitation grew on him. It seems to strike at the very heart. Teachin said, look here, Portskay, though. I've always had a respect for you. Settle it how you like. Fix the mess up for both our sakes with any formula that's not humiliating for your bank. I've already resigned from the club. Sylvia said, Oh, no, Christopher, not from the club. Portskay started back from beside the table. But if you're in the right, he said, you couldn't not resign from the club. I'm on the committee. I'll explain to them in the fullest, in the most generous. You couldn't explain, Titchin said. You can't get ahead of rumour. It's half over London at this moment. You know what the toothless old fellows of your committee are. Anderson, Folliot, and my brother's friend, Ruggles. Portscatho said, your brother's friend, Ruggles? But look here, he's something about the court, isn't he? But look here. His mind stopped. He said, people shouldn't overdraw. But if your father said you could draw on him, I'm really much concerned. You're a first-rate fellow, I can tell that from your passbook alone. Nothing but cheques drawn to first-class tradesmen for reasonable amounts, the sort of passbook I liked to see when I was a junior clerk in the bank. At that early reminiscence, feelings of pathos overcame him, and his mind once more stopped. Sylvia came back into the room. They had not perceived her going. She, in turn, held in her hand a letter. Deachin said, Look here, Portskay, though, don't get into this state. Give me your word to do what you can when you've assured yourself the facts are as I say. I wouldn't bother you at all. It's not my line, except for Mrs. Teachin's. A man alone can live that sort of thing down or die. But there's no reason why Mrs. Teachin should live tied to a bad hat while he's living it down or dying. But that's not right, Portsko, though, said. It's not the right way to look at it. You can't pocket. I'm simply bewildered. You've no right to be bewildered, Sylvia said. You're worrying your mind for expedience to save the reputation of your bank. We know your bank is more to you than a baby. You should look after it better then. Portscatho, who had already fallen two paces away from the table, now fell two paces back, almost on top of it. Sylvia's nostrils were dilated. She said, Titchen shall not resign from your beastly club. He shall not. Your committee will request him formally to withdraw his resignation. You understand? He will withdraw it. Then he will resign for good. He is too good to mix with people like you. She paused, her chest working fast. Do you understand what you've got to do? she asked. An appalling shadow of a thought went through Titchen's mind. He would not let it come into words. I don't know, the banker said. I don't know what I can get the committee. You've got to, Sylvia answered. I'll tell you why. Christopher was never overdrawn. Last Thursday I instructed your people to pay a thousand pounds to my husband's account. I repeated the instruction by letter, and I kept a copy of the letter witnessed by my confidential maid. I also registered the letter and have the receipt for it. You can see them. Portscatho mumbled over the letter. Is to Brownie. Yes, a receipt for a letter to Brownie. She examined the little green slip on both sides. 
He said, last Thursday, today's Monday, an instruction to sell Northwestern stock to the amount of £1,000 and place to the account of... Then, Sylvia said, that'll do. You can't angle for time any more. Your nephew has been in an affair of this sort before. I'll tell you. Last Thursday at lunch, your nephew told me that Christopher's brother's solicitors had withdrawn all the permissions for overdrafts on the books of the Groby estate. There were several to members of the family. Your nephew said that he intended to catch Christopher on the hop. That's his own expression, and dishonour the next cheque of his that came in. He said that he'd been waiting for the chance ever since the war, and the brother's withdrawal had given it to him. I begged him not to. But good God, the banker said, this is unheard of. It isn't, Sylvia said. Christopher has had five snotty little miserable subalterns to defend at court-martials for exactly similar cases. One was an exact reproduction of this. But good God, the banker exclaimed again, men giving their lives for their country. Do you mean to say Brownie did this out of revenge for Teachin's defending at court-martials? And then your thousand pounds is not shown in your husband's passbook? Of course it's not, Sylvia said. It has never been paid in. On Friday I had a formal letter from your people pointing out that North Westerns were likely to rise and asking me to reconsider my position. The same day I sent an express telling them explicitly to do as I said. Ever since then your nephew has been on the phone begging me not to save my husband. He was there just now when I went out of the room. He was also beseeching me to fly with him. Teachin said, Isn't that enough, Sylvia? It's rather torturing. Let them be tortured, Sylvia said, but it appears to be enough. Port Scather had covered his face with both his pink hands. He had exclaimed, Oh my God, Brownie again! Teachin's brother Mark was in the room. He was smaller, browner and harder than Teachin's, and his blue eyes protruded more. He had in one hand a bowler hat, in the other an umbrella, wore a pepper-and-salt suit and had race glasses slung across him. He disliked Portskay, though, who detested him. He had lately been knighted. He said, Hello, Portskay, though, neglecting to salute his sister-in-law. His eyes, whilst he stood motionless, rolled a look around the room and rested on a miniature bureau that stood on a writing table in a recess, under and between bookshelves. I see you've still got that cabinet, he said to Teachens. Teachens said, I haven't. I've sold it to Sir John Robertson. He's waiting to take it away till he has room in his collection. Portskado walked rather unsteadily round the lunch table and stood looking down from one of the long windows. Sylvia sat down on her chair beside the fireplace. The two brothers stood facing each other, Christopher suggesting wheat sacks, mark carved wood. All round them, except for the mirror that reflected bluenesses, the gilt backs of books. Hollow Central was clearing the table. I hear you going out again tomorrow, Mark said. I want to settle some things with you. I'm going at nine from Waterloo, Christopher said. I've not much time. You can walk with me to the war office if you like. Mark's eyes followed the black and white of the maid round the table. She went out with the tray. Christopher suddenly was reminded of Valentine Wannop clearing the table in her mother's cottage. Hollow Central was no faster about it. Mark said... Port Scather, as you're there, we may as well finish one point. I've cancelled my father's security for my brother's overdraft. Port Scather said to the window, but loud enough, We all know, to our cost. 
I wish you, however, Mark Teachens went on, to make over from my own account a thousand a year to my brother as he needs it, not more than a thousand in any one year. Portscay, though, said, write a letter to the bank. I don't look after clients' accounts on social occasions. I don't see why you don't, Mark Teachin said. It's the way you make your bread and butter, isn't it? Teachin said, you may save yourself all this trouble, Mark. I'm closing my account in any case. Portscay, though, spun round on his heel. I beg that you won't, he exclaimed. I beg that we, that we may have the honour of continuing to have you draw upon us. He had the trick of convulsively working jaws. His head against the light was like the top of a rounded gatepost. He said to Mark Teachens, You may tell your friend, Mr Ruggles, that your brother is empowered by me to draw on my private account, on my personal and private account, up to any amount he needs. I say that to show my estimate of your brother, because I know he will incur no obligations he cannot discharge. Mark Teachin stood motionless, leaning slightly on the crook of his umbrella on the one side, on the other displaying at arm's length the white silk lining of his bowler hat, the lining being the brightest object in the room. "'That's your affair,' he said to Port Scather. "'All I'm concerned with is to have a thousand a year paid to my brother's account till further notice.' Christopher Teachin said, with what he knew was a sentimental voice, to Port Scather, he was very touched, it appeared to him, that with the spontaneous appearance of several names in his memory, and with this estimate of himself from the banker, his tide was turning, and that this day might indeed be marked by a red stone. Of course, Portskay, though, I won't withdraw my wretched little account from you, if you want to keep it. It flatters me that you should. He stopped and added, I only wanted to avoid these, these family complications, but I suppose you can stop my brother's money being paid into my account. I don't want his money. He said to Sylvia, You had better settle the other matter with Portskayther. To Portskayther? I'm intensely obliged to you, Portskayther. You'll get Lady Portskayther round to McMaster's this evening, if only for a minute, before eleven. And to his brother, Come along, Mark. I'm going down to the war office. We can talk as we walk. Sylvia said, very nearly with timidity, and again a dark thought went over Teachin's mind, do we meet again, then? I know you're very busy. Teachin said, yes, I'll come and pick you out from Lady Job's if they don't keep me too long at the war office. I'm dining, as you know, at McMaster's. I don't suppose I shall stop late. I'd come, Sylvia said to McMaster's, if you thought it was appropriate. I'd bring Claudine Sandbach and General Wade. We're only going to the Russian dancers. We'd cut off early. Teachin's could settle that sort of thought very quickly. Yes, do he said hurriedly. It would be appreciated. He got to the door. He came back. His brother was nearly through. He said to Sylvia, and for him the occasion was a very joyful one, I've worried out some of the words of that song. It runs, Somewhere or other there must surely be the face not seen, the voice not heard. Probably it's the voice not even heard to make up the metre. I don't know the writer's name, but I hope I'll worry it all out during the day. Sylvia had gone absolutely white. Don't, she said. Oh, don't. She added coldly, don't take the trouble, and wiped her tiny handkerchief across her lips as Teachens went away. She had heard the song at a charity concert and had cried as she had heard it. She had read afterwards the words in the programme and had almost cried again. But she had lost the programme and had never come across the words again. The echo of them remained with her like something terrible and alluring, 
like a knife she would someday take out and with which she would stab herself. End of part two, chapter two, section two.